Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, New Treatments for Childhood Acute Lymphocytic Leukemia, or ALL. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. So we have over 296 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban and rural and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Ireland, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals and Novartis Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. We have wonderful speakers on our program today, really the best of the best, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. William Carroll. Dr. Carroll is Julie and Edward J. Minskoff, Professor of Pediatrics, Stephen D. Hassenfeld Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders, of Pediatrics, Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center at NYU Langone Health. Um, and uh, Dr. Uh, Carroll is going to be addressing an overview of acute lymphocytic leukemia in children, current standard of care, including chemotherapy, new treatment approaches, and key questions to ask the doctor and healthcare team in making treatment decisions. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Carroll. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, for that introduction. So before I begin to talk about acute lymphocytic or acute lymphoblastic leukemia, I just want to point out that the cancers that occur in children are distinctly different than those cancers that occur in adults. So while carcinomas, lung cancer, breast cancer, et cetera, are really the primary drivers of cancer in adults, in children we rarely see those malignancies. And the most common malignancy in children, of course, is acute leukemia. Uh, and of the acute leukemias, the majority are acute lymphocytic leukemia. So there's acute myeloleukemia, which is a minority, much more common in adults. But today's topic focuses on acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, uh, which is the most common pediatric cancer we see, making up between 25 and 30% of all the cancer cases diagnosed worldwide. Now, uh, while somewhat rare, this, the incidence is about 30 cases per million children, there are about 3,000 new cases uh, diagnosed each year in the United States. The peak incidence is between two and six years of age, but it can occur in infants, and of course, it can occur all the way up through older age. Uh, now, I think one of the fundamental things to really consider is, and the question we're always asked is, what is the cause of childhood ALL? And all human cancers are driven by mutations that take place in one cell in the body that occur in the DNA or the hard drive of the cell that triggers a growth switch. Now, it's very important for me to distinguish now because the minute you talk about genetics, people think about sort of the inherited genetic predisposition that could be seen in certain adult cancers. We're talking about here that in the child's body, uh, all cells are normal except one cell, in this case a white blood cell in the bone marrow, developed a mistake purely by accident 
that triggered a growth switch. And it turns out you probably need about four or five of these mistakes to occur to convert a normal white blood cell into a cancerous white blood cell. And these mutations uh, don't occur frequently in children, much more common in adults, of course, because they've been on this earth longer, especially in people who smoke or expose to sunlight where the mutation can be much more prevalent. We don't think that ALL or most childhood cancers are inherited, but there are a small percentage that are. But in general, ALL is not to be thought to be due to anything in the environment, not due to diet, not due to genetic inheritance. And the good news is that when the children go up and cured, uh, that their children aren't at significantly greater risk for having cancer or any other birth defect for that matter. So we've learned a lot about what these mutations do to cause childhood ALL, but these happen by chance. Now, it's really critical that um, 40 years ago, uh, a, cha a child had about a 15 to 20% chance of living five years from the diagnosis with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Now, strikingly, today, the cure rate has uh, exceeded 90%. So in our lifetimes, the cure rate has been transformative from 15 to 20% to 90%. Now, this breakthrough in treatment and curability, and I want to really point out that I'm, I'm talking cure here, not survival. I mean curing the cancer to where it never comes back. Now, this phenomenal result was not really achieved through, you know, the discovery of new medications, but using some of the same medications we used four decades ago, but using them in better combinations, certain sequences, and generally at higher doses compared to what was used before. And what is critical in the childhood cancer community is because childhood cancer is so infrequent, way back, you know, 40, 50 years ago, the pediatric centers around North America, and actually worldwide, different institutions, banded together as part of a network to conduct clinical trials to improve the outcome of children being treated for cancer. So it's part of this network now called the Children's Oncology Group where we find out what cures the disease in most patients and then stepwise improve on that result by conducting clinical trials so we can get the answer very quickly. So this disciplined uh, commitment to clinical trials has really been one of the defining features of the pediatric oncology community and is what led to that dramatic breakthrough. Now, what I also want to point out you know, personalized medicine is a terminology used that we tailor the medication to each individual patient. And I want to point out that pediatric oncologists were one of the first clinicians to do this. So our goal in pediatrics, of course, since children uh, live a long, long time, is to cure every patient. But do it in such a way that for those patients that have a good prognosis, let's not expose them to some of the toxic effects of chemotherapy if they don't need to. So for, every pa so, for example, age and white blood cell count are quite predictive of how well the child's going to do. So children, uh, you know, younger children under 10 years of age or over one year of age, and those whose white blood cell counts tend to be lower, have a very good outcome. So on the day number one, we basically divide patients into what's called standard risk, one to less than 10 years of age with white counts under 50,000, or high-risk, those over 10 years of age with ROI count of over 50,000. Both are very curable, but in the high-risk patients, we add more chemotherapy to account for some of this prognostic effect of age. Likewise, I mentioned the genetics of the blasts, the tumors themselves. These are the blast genetics. This has been a very powerful technique because we, uh, certain mutations are associated with a much better outcome 
and others we recognize we have to change therapy to accommodate these. So we combine age and Y count, the genetics of the blast, and most importantly, we see how quickly the blasts respond to chemotherapy. So intuitively, this makes the most sense. If you have blasts and they go away quickly in the peripheral blood and the bone marrow to the chemotherapy, it means that your blasts are more sensitive to treatment. So at the end of the first month, we check the bone marrow. We look to see that it has recovered with normal white blood cells, but we also do a very special test to make sure that we don't see leukemia cells hiding in the background of normal cells. Now, we know they're there because we stopped treatment it would come back. But we know that those patients who respond very quickly can be treated with less aggressive regimens. And finally, I want to mention that, you know, ALL therapy takes place over two to two and a half to sometimes three years. And the key is that for the first six months of treatment, you want to rapidly reduce the tumor cells to a very low number to prevent them from becoming resistant. So all approaches are sort of front-loaded to sort of a more intense treatment for the first six months, and then you migrate into maintenance for the next two years, two years, which really consists of much lower medications. You need to take a medication by mouth daily and another medication by mouth weekly and come to the clinic every two to four weeks to receive something else. But that maintenance is unique to ALL, and one is one of the critical components of therapy. So in essence, we combined nine to 10 drugs, but not all at once, over the two and a half years or so to completely eradicate the leukemia. And this does rely on chemotherapy. And chemotherapy, while not specific for leukemia, is certainly more effective with leukemia, but there are some side effects. And we, we're going to go through those. I think uh, Dr. Rates will go through this as the next speaker. I just want to point out there's a whole new number of new treatments on horizon. And basically, they're divided into two basic um, you know, kinds. One is called precision medicine-based approaches. This will be elaborated further. This is where we analyze the genetics of the tumor in more detail, and sometimes there's a mutation that can be targeted with a new drug. Uh, so, for example, something called pH-positive and pH-like ALL, more common in older children, can be targeted with new medications, which can be given, uh, or, some of these are oral medications. And while these patients in the past did didn't do very well. Now with these new medications, they're doing very, very well. The second course uh, of, of therapy, of course, is immunotherapy. And this is a whole new vista of treatment options for patients. Again, we'll be exploring more detail. This is where we either take a monoclonal antibody. This is a protein directed against the tumor cell itself, a drug, for example, called inotuzumab, that will target the cancer cell, or other ways where we take the patient's own immune system and harness their T cells to eradicate the cancer by using a drug called blenitumumab or something called CAR T cells, where we actually take the T cells from the patient, re-engineer them to attack the tumor, and reinfuse it. And these have shown striking breakthroughs, and it's our hope that in the future, some of these immunotherapeutic approaches can basically take the place of more conventional chemotherapy. Finally, I want to end with what are some key questions to ask your doctor uh, at that initial visit. And this is sort of a personal perspective on this. I will tell you that I offer every patient I see a chance to get a second opinion. You know, this is your child, and sometimes getting a second opinion, even only to reassure you, is a good option. I think asking the physician about their experience treating children with acute leukemia, you know, it's not a cookbook approach. Each child is very special. 
and access to clinical trials, which have been shown to provide the best option for patients as part of the children's oncology group. Whether they've embraced the new genetic analysis of the tumor cells themselves to search for options using targeted therapy. And finally, a topic we're going to discuss in more detail is what is the support system available? Uh, we often say here at our center that we want to er eradicate the burden of childhood cancer. So we're just not giving prescriptions for chemotherapy. We're focused on the you know, emotional and the psychological burden on patients and their family. So understanding whether the uh, center has a sort of holistic approach to treatment. So the children stay in school, their psychological issues are um, you know, uh, considered, uh, you know, whether there's neuropsychologists, physical therapists, teachers, so on and so forth, that there is, they have to be an essential part of the team because we are focused on the future from day one because these kids are going to grow up and we want the best possible outcome. And fortunately, in today's medicine, the vast majority of kids do well and grow up to lead very productive, healthy lives. I'm going to stop there and turn it over to my colleagues. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Carroll. That was really outstanding. And you really have set the stage for this entire program. And I think for everyone listening on the program today, um, you've really set the stage also for how um, these children are cared for. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth Reitz. And Dr. Reitz is Professor, Department of Pediatrics, NYU School of Medicine. She's Director, Division of Pediatric Hematology Oncology, Medical Director, Stephen D. Hessenfeld Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Reitz is going to address the role of clinical trials in childhood ALL, treatment of recurrent um, ALL, targeted treatment, stem cell transplantation, and managing treatment side effects. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Reitz. Karen, thank you so much for that kind invitation and for the opportunity to join all of you today. Um, as Carolyn mentioned, I'll begin by speaking about the role of clinical trials in childhood ALL. Um, families of children with ALL are always encouraged to explore clinical trials options, and most children, in fact, do participate in a clinical trial. Clinical trials for children with newly diagnosed ALL typically take the best-known therapy, as you heard from Dr. Carroll, and test minor modifications in the treatment or some element of the diagnostic testing in an effort to further improve outcomes or reduce toxicity. Clinical trials are also available for children with recurrent leukemia, and these trials frequently offer new medications that have shown promise in other groups of patients, such as adults, or even in other blood cancers, or they can test new drug combinations, combinations of medicines that haven't been used but are very promising. Clinical trials are offered by a number of treating consortia, um, such as the Children's Oncology Group, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Consortium, and St. Jude's Children's Hospital in the United States, and comparable groups at international sites. And as you heard from Dr. Carroll, the tremendous outcome improvements that have been seen in childhood ALL over the past decades have been attributed largely to successive clinical trials that have incrementally refined risk classification and treatment for children. Participation in clinical trials is always voluntary, and trials are monitored by an external group while they're in progress so that any significant findings are shared with participants as soon as they're available so that the best-known treatment can be offered to all patients. 
I'm going to shift next and talk a little bit about recurrent ALL. So the general treatment strategy for relapsed ALL is to reinduce remission with intensive chemotherapy. While children will receive some of the same medications that were used to treat ALL initially, such as vincristin or steroids, in the relapse setting, treatment is generally more intensive and frequently requires long inpatient hospitalizations. Treatment for recurrence can vary based on the timing of when the relapse occurs relative to the initial diagnosis and also the places of recurrence, so whether the recurrence is just in the bone marrow or might even be in a non-bone marrow site since it's a central nervous system. Early bone marrow relapse is generally defined as relapses occurring within three years of the initial diagnosis. And when you look at those relapses that occur in a non-bone marrow site, so the central nervous system, early relapse is generally defined there as those occurring within 18 months of initial diagnosis. Once remission is achieved by intensive chemotherapy, stem cell transplantation or bone marrow transplantation is generally recommended for early bone marrow relapses as this has been shown to increase chances for cure when compared to ongoing treatment with chemotherapy alone. Treatment for later bone marrow relapses, so those would be occurring um, over three years from initial diagnosis, varies, and many groups use the early response to reinduction chemotherapy to determine whether to continue treatment with ongoing intensive chemotherapy or whether to uh, pursue an allogeneic stem cell transplant after remission is achieved. As Dr. Carroll mentioned, there's been great excitement with a number of promising new immunotherapies in recent years for the treatment of relapse leukemia, and those include monoclonal antibodies that are directed to certain proteins on the surface of leukemia cells. Um, Dr. Carroll also mentioned bispecific T-cell engaging or bite antibodies. So these are antibodies that bind not only to a child's leukemia cells, but also to their own T-cells, their own immune system cells that can then direct these cells to the leukemia uh, population so that they can be killed by their own immune mechanisms. And then the third new promising immunotherapy that Dr. Carroll mentioned is the chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, or CAR T-cell therapy. And here, um, as you heard, a child's T-cells are collected, and then in the laboratory, they're genetically modified, so they express a receptor that targets their leukemia population when they're reinfused. Um, the next thing that I wanted to speak about um, also is an area of great um, uh, upcoming promise. It's targeted treatments or precision medicine-based approaches. Um, with the recent advances in genomic testing in ALL, some children will be found to have changes in the specific genetic makeup of their leukemia cells where there's a medicine that can target that gene change, such as a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Because targeted medications are more specifically directed to the leukemia cells themselves, they can have favorable side effect profiles when compared to conventional chemotherapy. As you heard from Dr. Carroll, one of the, the most prototypical examples of using targeted therapy in children is for the treatment of Philadelphia chromosome positive or PH positive ALL, where a tyrosine kinase inhibitor such as a matinib or dasatinib, which targets the gene uh, fusion in that disease, is now added to chemotherapy. And this has been very successful, and this has eliminated the need for a bone marrow transplant in the majority of cases. 
And then another recently described subtype of ALL, the pH-like ALL, which is similar to pH-positive ALL, is another subtype of leukemia where there's been promise for the use of targeted medications um, in combination with chemotherapy. And there are several ongoing uh, clinical trials that are exploring this treatment approach currently. The next topic that I was going to address briefly is stem cell transplantation or bone marrow transplantation. So some children with ALL may benefit from a transplant, uh, the, the goal of which is to destroy leukemia cells with high doses of chemotherapy with or without radiation, and then to replace the bone marrow with healthy blood-forming cells. There are several different types of bone marrow transplants that can be performed, but typically the allogeneic transplant or, or bone marrow stem cells from another person is performed most commonly in children with ALL. In an allogeneic transplant, children receive stem cells from a matched or partially, partially mismatched related or unrelated donor, and this creates a new immune system that is also potentially able to recognize any low-level leukemia cells that might persist. For children with ALL, stem cell transplantation is really recommended, though, in, in a minority of cases overall. It's generally reserved for children who have leukemia that recurs um, in some situations or leukemia that may be very uh, slow to respond to initial treatment or leukemia that has unfavorable genetic features. The last topic that I'm going to speak about briefly is managing treatment side effects. So children receiving treatment for ALL are at some risk for both short-term and long-term side effects from their treatment, and there are many ongoing efforts now to identify and prevent these side effects. Most children participating in, in defined treatment protocols, there will be very specific recommendations within these protocols to modify doses of chemotherapy or to hold doses of chemotherapy at certain points to allow these side effects to subside. Infections are the most common acute side effects that are associated with ALL treatment, and most ALL treatment protocols now include what we would call supportive care guidelines to try to minimize the risk for infectious complications. So examples would be um, children routinely receive TMP-sulfa, otherwise known as Bactrim or Septra, to prevent pneumocystis pneumonia while their immune system is suppressed while they're receiving chemotherapy, and most children will receive preventative antifungal medications or antibiotics if they're receiving intensive treatment regimens, uh, for example, for relapsed ALL. Well, the new immunotherapies that you've heard about, so the monoclonal antibodies, the CAR T-cell therapy, generally have quite favorable side effect profiles, especially when compared to chemotherapy. They can have a unique set of acute side effects, um, such as cytokine release syndrome, when the immune system is overactivated temporarily, and those side effects require specialized monitoring and treatment to reverse. One of the most um, significant concerns about ALL therapy is the short and long-term impact on cognitive development, and I believe Dr. Muriel is going to speak about this more. The risk for decline in cognitive functioning is greatest among children who receive cranial radiation therapy, which now really is administered to only a minority of children with ALL. 
there have been many questions and studies about the impact of systemic and interthecal chemotherapy without radiation on cognitive development in children. Most of these studies have shown that while there is some risk for cognitive impairment, it is certainly much less than that um, that's been associated with cranial radiation in the past. Recent studies have shown, for example, though, that some children who have received interthecal chemotherapy and higher doses of methotrexate are at some risk for attention problems um, and impairment in their organizing and processing speed. Um, however, their general intelligence is generally unchanged from that of the general population. While most treatment-related side effects are short-term and reversible, some children can experience longer-term treatment-related side effects, and screening for this is essential because there are many interventions that are very helpful if they're recognized, and we certainly would always recommend early intervention um, to, to help ameliorate some of these side effects and symptoms. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over uh, to our next colleague. Thank you so much, Dr. Wright. That was really outstanding as well. And um, and so informative in terms of just the uh, management of children um, um, having treatment. So that's really excellent. And uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Anna Muriel. Dr. Muriel is Chief Division of Pediatric Psychosocial Oncology, Institute Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Mural is going to address the social, emotional, and practical concerns during and after AL treatment consistent with your child's stage of development, suggestions on return to school and peer activities, and late and long-term effects of AL treatment. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Muriel. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, we are shifting the focus. As Dr. Carroll uh, originally described, there is um, a hope that as part of your medical treatment, you will also receive some psychosocial treatment uh, for your child and your family. And um, this is also supported by national standards of care now that we have for the psychosocial treatment of children um, who are receiving uh, cancer therapy. And, you know, as uh, many of you uh, have likely already experienced, there's this initial adjustment period, and then there's a, a period of um, psychosocial adjustment for the child and for the whole family. That initially, um, for most of you uh, receiving treatment on the inpatient side to begin, there's that adjustment to the hospital environment, uh, to all the medical procedures, to new staff coming in and uh, meeting your child, and that can be really challenging for children um, over time or initially, um, but that it becomes, it can become uh, better over time. And, you know, a lot of the ways that a child will adjust to their uh, medical treatment for leukemia will have to do with their pre-existing temperament. You, you know your child best in terms of what they've been like before they uh, started leukemia treatment, and um, that will determine somewhat how they adjust to their treatment. So um, if a child has a predisposition to a uh, more anxious temperament or a child who's very shy, this may be harder in the hospital environment where there are lots of people talking to them and um, coming at them with, with different kinds of um, issues. Certainly, if your child has a history of autism or ADHD or depression, that will also impact the way that they ad adjust to their hospitalization. We hope for any child, however, that there's um, honesty and communication uh, that starts from very early on um, after diagnosis, and we really support using the appropriate words for uh, the child's illness to really talk about leukemia. Uh, sometimes uh, people use the word blood cancer. Uh, certainly this is going to depend on how old your child is, but even for very young children, we hope that we're using the, the correct terminology so that they can understand, for example, that this isn't just a boo-boo like... Um, 
you know, falling down and hurting yourself, but this is something that is different and that will require a different kind of treatment um, and that won't, uh, won't be so uh, quick to heal as a fever or an earache. Um, certainly, younger children will be reassured in this initial phase by parental presence, by some kind of predictability about who's caring for them, by the kinds of routines that we try to develop in the hospital, um, bringing familiar items, uh, having uh, familiar faces around will be really important for these younger children. Older children uh, will also be dealing with the different kinds of losses that they're uh, dealing with in the hospital, that their, their loss of their usual activities, school, peers, um, will be felt by children um, who are older. They may be starting to anticipate what it means to be missing part of second grade or certainly for the teenagers to be thinking about what it means to be in the hospital during their junior year of high school. Um, those older children may also be thinking about the whys, uh, why did this happen to them, or the what-ifs in terms of how the medication is working. And they will be relying on this kind of open communication with their medical team and their parents to understand what's happening to them. These older children may also be thinking about that balance between the parental care or the medical care and sometimes the intrusion that needs to happen in the context of their treatment and their wishes for independence and privacy, um, which are often really disrupted in the hospital. Children are also having to deal with all these new medical procedures, uh, IV placements or line placements um, and uh, sometimes NG tube placements or the kinds of things that are very distressing and intrusive for children. Um, and so we also hope that um, the children can be prepared for these kinds of procedures um, to understand what's happening and why um, and have some control or choices in how things happen, whether they sit on a parent's lap or whether they lie in bed, um, whether they use uh, one hand or the other for a particular test. Um, whenever there are choices, we try to give them to children. Um, but there are lots of things they have to get used to regardless and that they don't have a choice about. And we hope that um, where your child is being treated also has um, a, a team of child life specialists who can be um, participating in medical play with the children or introducing them to um, some of the medical uh, procedures. Um, our, our pediatric oncology nursing colleagues are also tremendous at this and um, often have uh, ways to help children get more comfortable with these procedures. One of the... Um, Important parts of uh, leukemia treatment for, for children is often uh, steroids. It's, uh, it's usually part of every protocol for leukemia, and these can bring their own range of side effects, and sometimes helping parents understand these and prepare for them can be very helpful. Um, we know that um, the behavioral side effects of steroids can include um, an increase in appetite, insomnia, as well as moodiness, irritability, sometimes lethargy, and sometimes children develop uh, pain uh, when they are coming off of their steroids as well. And um, they're often at higher doses at certain times of the protocol and maybe at lower doses, but may also be uh, provided throughout the course of the child's leukemia treatment in a pulse way, which can be very disruptive. And that there are a range of interventions we hope that parents can um, uh, uh, implement when a child is on steroids. Um, from a behavioral standpoint, we try to help parents adjust expectations, and any parent who's been through this a few times will be able to talk about what uh, kinds of things they adjust in terms of how they expect their child to behave, what limits they set, or what they expect their child to be able to manage in terms of frustration, um, because that really does change uh, during steroids. Um, and we can implement behavioral strategies to try to balance the flexibility of uh, maybe not having um, 
uh, strict rules about what children eat, but eating when they can eat or eating what they want to eat, um, versus what they, when they have to have limits around things like what's unsafe behavior, dangerous, or um, hurtful behavior. Um, we can use positive reinforcements and um, a host of uh, sort of um, uh, sticker charts or uh, rewards that can help children get through some of the uh, changes that go on with steroids. Um, occasionally, a child's uh, steroid uh, symptoms are so significant um, that they may be dangerous to the child or other people or to um, uh, interfere with the uh, delivery of oncology treatment, and then we might consider the use of medications um, uh, to help control these symptoms and stabilize the child's mood and behavior, and these might be offered in a way that is just when the child is on steroids um, to, to help with those symptoms or might need to be there from a consistent, on a consistent basis. One of the other big uh, issues that children have to adjust to is the hair loss, and again, this will depend on the age and temperament of the child, and it is often... Uh, you know, distressing at the beginning, but most children adjust to this over time. It's also important to recognize that family roles change during the course of a child's treatment for leukemia, and um, that this includes, you know, parental roles around uh, work versus child care or the care of other children. Um, sometimes children need to be treated far from their home, and there's a lot of back and forth or switching off that parents have to do, and this is very stressful for the whole family. Um, including the siblings, and um, it, it's also important to recognize the needs of the siblings and to consider what uh, supports might be available to the to the siblings, both at the treating center, but also there are some national organizations that provide both information and um, support for siblings while they're while the child is going on uh, leukemia treatment. You know, the adjustment that happens for the whole family extends over time. As Dr. Carroll described, the, the, the length of treatment can be quite long. Um, and we do hope that children will return to some of their normal routines. In the hospital, there can be some home tutoring, some tutoring that goes on or some attendance at the hospital school. Uh, some children participate in school via Skype or FaceTime to try to at least have some uh, interaction with their peers and with the school environment. And then we hope that children and their uh, families will also be communicating regularly with their support system um, at school and at home. Um, and there might be opportunities for peers to come for visits to the hospital um, or to uh, participate in virtual gaming for some of the older children. Um, but, uh, you know, it's important for, for, for children to have uh, ongoing communication, but that for the peers and the parents of those peers to be prepared. Um, so that there's some understanding of what the child's treatment entails so that they can um, appropriately interact with that child. And then we hope that as soon as the child is medically able and is, is received clearance to return to school, that they're able to do that with the support of um, some accommodations um, so that they can uh, be accommodated for uh, possible absences from school or when they fall behind um, and that the school um, is able to address those issues um, uh, individually for that child. And it's important then for uh, there to be a point person at the school so that um, the parent knows who to contact and, and how to try to adjust the child's uh, educational expectations. And that's really for on treatment. And there's also some, uh, some uh, many centers have an opportunity for um, the child's uh, classroom or teacher to receive some education about the treatment as well so that there uh, can be some uh, support provided to that child that's um, really specific to the um, leukemia treatment in the school setting. 
And then just turning to a, a brief moment about the uh, long-term and late effects of ALL treatment, um, certainly there's going to be the medical follow-up that your medical teams will be uh, establishing for you um, after treatment. But this transition off treatment can really bring a mix of emotions that for many families there's a certain amount of relief um, to have a, a different kind of routine get into place and not have to come to the hospital so much. But there can also be a certain amount of anxiety, especially for parents, I think, about not being monitored so closely and the need to transition back to their pediatrician and be thoughtful about um, how the child is now going to be dealt with when there's a fever um, that uh, is not related to leukemia treatment. Um, uh, there's also was the mention of the late neurocognitive effect and the possibility of um, your child having a, a, uh, some uh, changes that happen over time after their leukemia treatment. Um, and so it would be important to have a low threshold for assessment for neuropsychological testing um, that can inform special education plans um, and be helpful to children over time. Um, many children will catch up and be able to um, resume their regular school trajectory, um, but some children will need some additional support and help, and that there could be the opportunity for treatment for the attentional and organizational uh, changes that may occur, and that might include therapy as well as medications. And for every child, as they transition off treatment, there's the uh, process over time that occurs of integrating the illness and the treatment, and that most children experience a lot of resilience, um, but there also may be uh, losses and changes that have to be dealt with. But I think it's, you know, as you watch your children grow, there's always a sense that um, they uh, integrate their leukemia experience and move on with their lives and that they continue to revisit their experience um, across developmental stages and um, will go on to live uh, healthy and satisfying lives over time. So I'll stop there um, and uh, turn it over to Dr. Mesner for the question and answer. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yarrow. That was really outstanding and actually um I can't thank you enough. That was wonderful and just very informative, just really about the social and emotional aspects of childhood AOL, so everyone be aware of that. And now we do have time for questions. Um, we're going to go right to questions at this point, and, um, because I know many of you have questions. And um, so I'm going to ask Crystal to um, come on and uh, explain to all of you how to, how to ask questions. I'm going to ask um, also Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, so we're all set to take questions. And um, uh, if we don't get your question by the end of the program, then I will, of course, um, we will, um, of course, uh, I'll explain at the very end how to, how to uh, get your questions answered. But for the time being, let's see how many questions we can take. Um, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question. And so we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, this one is for Dr. Carroll, just to start with. Um, so the question is, are there environmental factors that cause pediatric AOL? So the answer to that one is a bit complex. So there have been a number of studies constantly surveying you know, the environment to see if we can pick any uptick in childhood leukemia cases. And these have been, uh, you know, somewhat controversial because, it, because a lot of the observations have been failed to replicate. So in one study, uh, it may be pesticides, for example, in California, one study I can recall, but that has not been validated in other studies. So we think overall the environment is unlikely to play a significant role. Now that being said, 
we're constantly surveying because uh, we have a changing environment to see if there's any relationship between certain you know environmental factors and uh, the initiation of ALL. But to date, we think that the association there is probably you know weak or maybe even non-existent. So we don't think the environment plays a big role, but it's something that we're constantly monitoring. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and there's um, another question, actually, um, and this one is for Dr. Wright. Um, I read that chemotherapy is a risk factor to other cancers. Should I worry about my son getting a second cancer when he is older? Um, there is a small risk of developing another cancer from prior chemotherapy exposures, but when you look at the components of ALL therapy, it doesn't contain a lot of those medications that um, put a child at high risk for that. So we would generally say the risk is, is you know, less than a couple percentage point of developing a, a secondary cancer with ALL um, frontline therapy. Excellent. Thank you. And do you want to comment about the, um, I think, the concept of uh, treatment summaries in terms of that um, uh, are those used and would families get those so they'd have a sense of what the treatments were? Um, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So we would absolutely recommend at the completion of therapy that each child receive a summary that would detail all the specific medications. And one element of that summary that's particularly important is the cumulative dose of each specific agent. Um, so, for example, with anthracyclines, we'll always have a total dose there, and that total cumulative exposure will help you to you know, have some prediction of what a child's risk factors or risk would be for later cardiac effects. Um, so that care plan, that summary is very important, I think, for families uh, first and foremost, and then also for pediatricians and any other health care providers that um, are involved in your child's care. Awesome, thank you. Um, um, and um, we have a question now for um, Dr. Muriel. Um, my son is going back to school after finishing his treatment. How can I ensure that he gets the support that he needs in school? That's, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, it's important, hopefully, to have had somebody who would all along under, uh, knew what the treatment was, and I think to think about things like you know when the child was absent and what kinds of uh, help he got over time in terms of tutoring or um, support while he was out of school, but then I think making sure that the school does some kind of assessment to look at where your child is um, as they're coming back to school, both in terms of their uh, sort of what they've missed and um, whether they're on grade level for the various subjects, and then thinking about getting a 504 uh, plan for accommodations. It's, this is a legal statute that allows every child in the public school, every child uh, to receive um, accommodations for the kind of learning that they need to do now that they're back on treatment. Um, you could also engage uh, a neuropsychologist to do testing to, that's more formalized, um, and then to really monitor closely to see if you are concerned about how things are going and engage other uh, mental health providers, a, a psychologist um, or a psychiatrist to um, help your child if they're having more trouble with attention or organization after treatment. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Can I can I just um, follow up on that question? Oh yes, please. Uh, yeah. Oh yes, please. So I I think and this has been brought up before. I think we always say survivorship starts on day one of treatment. So it's critical that you basically 
integrate in, you know, the psychological assessment, the, the teaching, and the educational, so that no child gets behind because their the childhood ALL is diagnosed when children are in the midst of a very formative part of their sort of growth and development. So everything should be done aggressively to transition them back into school, you know, obviously when safe, uh, and to keep up, even if they can't get back to school, with you know the, the pace of the normal educational curriculum. So I think this is where the team concept comes in. It's just beyond giving the therapies that you, you don't want to see side effects. You want to prevent them from occurring. So I think it's really got to be aggressive about uh, this aspect of treatment right from day one, as opposed to waiting for a child to come off treatment and begin to you know assess some of these things. Dr. Rice, do you want to add anything as well? Or? No, I mean, I I agree 100% that it really begins early, and and so much can be done if you detect it and try to implement, you know, strategies early on. Um, so I would agree 100% with it really begins at day one. Excellent. Um, and um, I have a question from one of the online participants, um, and um, this one would be, again, for Dr. Um, Carol. Are there certain groups of children that are more are prone to ALL? So the answer to that one is a bit complex. Uh, so let me tell you, the, the answer is, in general, no. Now, it has been, with the development of the Human Genome Project, there has been um, some development that there may be certain children slightly predisposed to getting ALL over somebody else. Now, this is a bit of, of where statistics can be misleading. So if I told you that, you know, that the, the incidence of childhood ALL was, you know, 30 in, you know, 100, I mean, in, in a million, and if I said, well, if you had this sort of genetic background, it may be 33 in, you know, a million, this with 33 versus 30 in a million, yes, that's a slightly big increase, but in terms of an individual patient, that's really not much of a difference between 30 in a million versus 33. So there is some data coming out that there may be certain predisposing factors, but their impact on disease development is a lot less manifest than something like an early onset breast cancer that occurs in adults. So it, there, there is maybe a slight increase in certain people, but in terms of biologic sense, there really is not a big impact on who gets it and who doesn't. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um... And a question for Dr. Muro: Will treatment affect my daughter's ability to learn, grow, and develop? Well, you know, as as we've discussed, this is going to depend a lot on where your child is at the very beginning. I think our goal, as uh, Dr. Carroll has has mentioned, is that from the very beginning, um, as the child is receiving treatment, we are focused on keeping them on their developmental developmental trajectory, so that they are keeping pace with their um, peers in those kinds of things. Uh, but we also know that there are going to be changes and things that may um, impact your child's development while they're going through treatment in terms of missed opportunities to be with peers or to be in the school setting um, or that they're not feeling well and they're not uh, achieving some of the milestones that we might hope for them. However, children are quite resilient and are able really to catch up on many of these things um, and to be able to um, uh, be back in the uh, environment. I think it's important to keep them exposed to the variety of um, age-appropriate activities as much as possible um, and uh, keep your family functioning in as healthy a way as possible throughout their course of treatment to optimize uh, their development and their um, uh, their growth over time. I think the, the learning issues can be very specific, and so that's 
we know many children can go on after their leukemia treatment to do uh, to continue to learn and to do very well in school. But there may be some children with some vulnerabilities, and it's important to address those early on so that they can uh, do the um, uh, implement the, the interventions that will help them over time. Thank you. And um, we have another question from the online participants, and this is for Dr. Wright. Um, my first child has pediatric AL, and I am currently pregnant with my second child. Is there anything I can do to decrease the chances of my second child having AL? Um, that's a great question. So as Dr. Carroll mentioned, usually ALL isn't familial, so um, there, there really isn't a large risk in a second pregnancy. Um, if you look at siblings, I mean, just as slight, but as you, when Dr. Carroll was explaining you know, the population statistics, that, that risk is very, very minimal. So really we reassure um, children and families that the risk for developing ALL in a sibling is, is really um, very, very, very small. Um, and this question um, is having to do with, uh, with Dr. Muriel, actually, um, with friends. Um, um, how do I keep, how does a, a parent help a child keep in touch with friends and perhaps explain what's going on? And, and is that happening very much? Or could you say a bit about that? Um, really important I think um, especially for uh, school age children for but even for the little ones there is it's important to keep uh, some peer relationships going on I think for the older children um, uh, uh, keeping uh, you know if your child is on the phone and doing social media keeping that going is, is very appropriate and is they will kind of navigate that on their own I think for younger children they're going to need some support from their parents um, to uh, keep in touch with peers, and I think sometimes that has to do with preparation of other parents and explaining what's going on. I think some parents uh, of other children want very much to uh, be in touch, and others may be a little bit apprehensive about that and how uh, their child might be affected by seeing a child with leukemia. Um, and so educating the parent about what's happening and then trying to set up um, communication and, and uh, visits with children um, that are age-appropriate can be really helpful. Um, you know, there are concerns sometimes about infectious um, diseases and, you know, sending your child to school during flu season, but your medical providers can uh, provide some guidelines around that and some precautions around that, but that we really do hope that children can interact with other kids throughout their leukemia treatment. There's also opportunities in the clinic, we hope, for children to meet other children who are being treated for cancer um, and that there might be uh, activities and the kinds of things that will help kids uh, feel uh, comfortable um, with other kids who know exactly what it's like to not have hair or to have an NG tube. Um, and so those are also important for children to uh, develop uh, those relationships with other kids on cancer treatment. Um, thank you. Um, excellent. And um, so this is a question probably for all of our speakers. Um, it has to do with the, uh, the, um, the question is, um, should a patient's young children have a, an active voice in the conversation about their treatment, um, depending on their emotional and psychological maturity? Um, um, how do you involve young children? So um, would anyone like to start with that one? Opposed to my, ask Dr. Muriel, do you want to start with that and then... Well, actually, I think it really does come from the medical providers as well. So it might be worth um, having uh, the, the, the oncologists start with that because I think it, it really comes from the medical team in terms of how they engage the children. 
but it is important too. Well, I think I'll start. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, I think that it's essential the child, and I think uh, it was mentioned that they need to to know that we're treating them as an honest participant in this whole process. So they need to know that we're going to tell them, you know, the, you know. Honestly, what we're you know what we're dealing with, and obviously not to the same details you talk to the parents about, but they need to have sort of a voice here. Now, sometimes you know the younger children they may not want to get you know chemotherapy, and they may want to get their port access, and obviously that's you know they they can't have that choice, but they can certainly have a choice about when they get the port access, whether they want to wait ten minutes with a child life therapist, so on. So giving them some choices where they feel actively engaged and are not or helpless is absolutely essential. And certainly, as the older the child gets, you know, having them engaged in the treatment, um, you know, everybody's, this is part of personalized medicine. Everybody does it a little bit differently. They go through some sort of routine before they get the board access, the chemotherapy, uh, you know, and I think that's absolutely essential in terms of making them feel safe and comfortable and that we're open and honest about what needs to be done to get them uh, cured of their disease and back on track. That's excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Ives, do you want to add as well? I mean, I would agree. I think that honesty is absolutely essential, you know, it's developmentally appropriate. And I think they do have a lot of choices. And I think, you know, now that there are a lot of new, exciting therapeutic opportunities for, for children that are very different. Immunotherapy is very different than conventional chemotherapy. And I think older children, it's really important to hear their opinions and what they value most um, and to be active participants in, in some of those important decisions. And I think, as as we've discussed, the team approach can be very helpful in terms of helping parents come along with this too. In terms of um, being comfortable with engaging their child in a in an age appropriate way with the medical team, and the children may also have their own um, preferences for how they receive information. There are some children who certainly want to be in the meeting with the doctors from the very beginning, and there are other children who may want their parents to get the news first and then have that explanation because they may be a little bit more shy or more um, or need the comfort of just their parents talking with them to take in some of this difficult information. Um, but I think it, it is very important that we um, include young children in their um, in explanations about their illness and in giving them choices about the things they have choices about and then being clear when they don't have a choice about something. Excellent. And, and um, there's another question about what about the, um, the parents and the, and the caregivers, the guardians, what about them in terms of um, support that they might be getting from the, the healthcare team? And um, so again, we'll start with you, Dr. Carroll, and um, everyone comment on that. Well, if I understand the question correctly, is uh, we said we, we don't, uh, you know, we care for patients and we care for families. So embracing the family uh, is part of the essential, you know, role that the physician provides as sort of a, you know, the, the quarterback. But it takes a, a real team here, and the parents and other healthcare providers are absolutely essential part of the team. And it's very important to understand, you know, the, the sort of the child's unique makeup. And I think this was also mentioned earlier that. Uh, you know, you know, learning about their likes and dislikes, and you know, the, the parents are often in a great position to help us sort of optimize how to best deliver care. So we really embrace that family concept uh, from day one, and it's to the parents, and they feel like they're part of the team. And because oftentimes parents feel helpless, in fact, when they play a very central role in making this whole thing successful. Absolutely. Thank you. And I also Dr. think that. Um, 
sometimes the uh, parents may need a little bit of space to process and get support on their own, and that, again, you hope that there's a team that might provide a social worker that could um, meet with a parent if they had their own distress and their own concerns that they wanted to talk about a little bit separately from the child. Um, so uh, that team approach is really essential in taking care of all the, all the members of the family. I would agree. I think over my career, I've probably learned honestly the most from from parents, and and certainly their their cues and about their children and having them actively engaged in treatment decision making in the process um, has been absolutely critical. I think other things that I've seen that have worked very well is just the input from parents and parents' advisory panels um, have been you know very essential in terms of how we as a healthcare team can do a better job and be more responsive to the needs of children and their families. So I would, you know, reiterate what Dr. Carroll and Dr. Muriel have said that it's absolutely critical to engage, you know, the whole family in the process. That sounds really um so important. It sounds like the care um for these children involves everyone. Um it sounds like the healthcare team really reaches out to all the the, the, the family, the uh, the children to make the care of these children the very optimal. It sounds like really um I, I want to thank our speakers. You have been actually extraordinary. Um, this has been an extraordinary call, I want to say. I just want to thank you all. You can't hear us all applauding, but we are applauding you. Um, um, this is amazing. I also want to thank those who have asked such really thoughtful questions, really, which enhance the call today. Now, I did say that I know there are many questions still in queue, so I actually want to um, attend to how you'll get your questions answered. So um, for those of you who... Um, still have questions. Um, I definitely want to, first of all, recommend highly that you go back to your treating healthcare team. Of course, they know the most about you, and as you've heard from our speakers today, of course, they definitely want to be involved. But I know that many of you also like to get information from other sources of information um, that you can get. And so we do often give people um, the information about many of the blood cancer organizations that are out there to contact, and I'm going to actually just call out to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society as a wonderful resource for all of you to access. They have a wonderful call center, and they can address some of your questions about um, treatment, place to get information. The other place, of course, is the um, um, the um, the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have a toll-free number, and they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, so that's really good for people both in the U.S. and internationally. You can post your question. They have a live chat feature, and they will get you all the information you would need to take back to your treating healthcare team um, with any of your questions and concerns. I also just want to also comment about um, the services that you can access from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide a host of services um, to families um, facing uh, a child receiving a, a care for, um, for, for a blood cancer. And so I would want you to know that you can contact Cancer Care at any time. You can call us at 1-800-813-4673. That's our uh, HOPE line. Or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And in terms of the question, in terms of just help for... Um, for um, parents and family members, um, we do have um, an online support groups. We have actually many online support groups. We have actually over 120 of them. And we have one on caring for a child with cancer, mostly for parents, actually. And many people find those very, very helpful. Um, they do not, they're good for people all over the world as well as the U.S. And they are not uh, specific to time. People can post any time of the day or night. They're all facilitated by professionally trained oncology social workers. Now, we also do provide 
practical assistance to people and financial assistance, and we also provide, of course, a host of um, just counseling services, both on the telephone and online. So again, you can contact us for that as well. But also what you're hearing again on the program today is that many of the um, health centers where your children are getting care, many of those medical institutions have a whole multidisciplinary team of experts, and they have oncology social workers, and they have um, psychiatrists, and they have the, on- the oncologists themselves, um, and just a whole team of people that you can, and child life specialists, that can really help you um, with any concerns that you may have specific to your child. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we really don't want any of you to feel you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of the community of support, and we are here um, to, um, to, um, to really um, to assist you, and um, really um, all of us are. And um, uh, so uh, it's just really um, wonderful um, to, um, to, to know that your children are being cared for by such a multidisciplinary, collaborative team of people whose interest is your child and your family. And that is a very a very clear focus, I think, that you all heard on today's program. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.